I think people nominally have never been more attached to self-transformation, but the actual willingness to take the risks it entails probably is lower. We want to be able to control everything, and we want self-transformation, but on our own terms. And that's uh, a somewhat dubious prospect. That was Tyler Cowen, an economist, a best-selling author, a podcaster, a prolific blogger, and a professor at George Mason University. And I probably could have actually made that rather imposing list even longer. One wonders how he finds the time to excel at all of these things, but remarkably, he does. I originally came to Tyler's work through his 2013 book, Average is Over, an incredibly insightful book about the future of work and careers and why being good enough at your job just isn't, well, good enough anymore. From there, I started reading his excellent blog, Marginal Revolution, where he posts daily on everything from economic theories to what he's reading to why George Orwell is overrated. But the focus of this conversation will be his latest work, The Complacent Class, a book that completely changed the way that I think about risk-taking and what it means to be an American. In a nutshell, the book argues that due to trends in technology, job prospects, and gentrification— Americans are being lulled into complacency. That as a culture and as individuals, we are less dynamic, less restless, and most important, less risky than we used to be. And the most worrisome part is, we don't even know it. To articulate why this aversion to risk is emerging and begin to understand how we might push back against it, Tyler and I get into how matching technologies, like say dating apps, encourage complacency, while delivery technologies, Amazon Prime, Netflix streaming, keep us at home and pacified on the sofa rather than out exploring the world. Tyler notes that while we claim to be hungry for change and self-transformation, our actions suggest otherwise. Cross-country moves are on the decline, fewer folks are launching new businesses, and people are staying at their jobs longer. So what gives? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more creative, resilient, and even risky through the simple act of slowing down. Let's dive in. So I wanted to start by walking listeners through some of the many ways in which we're taking risks less than we have in the past. So maybe we can start with matching. Sure. In the complacent class, you articulate how technology has made it easier than ever to find a song, a restaurant, an employer, even a romantic partner um, who matches our tastes. Especially a romantic partner, yes. (laughs) Can you kind of elaborate on what's happening there and why this is um, sort of keeping us cocooned in our comfort zones? If you use the internet, say you go to dating services, You can go to dating services for people maybe who are just looking for sex, or you can go for people who are just looking for marriage, or people who belong to a certain religion or certain political point of view. And what we see happening is people paired more and more with others of the same level of education or income or politics. So very often this is great for the people who match successfully. This is hardly all bad. If it were, it wouldn't be happening. Uh, But in In a way, we're eating up some of our capital for social upward mobility. 
because I say two well-off people match to each other, one law partner marries another, it then very indirectly becomes harder for other people to marry up, to marry either law partner. So America now is a country, in terms of where people live, we're more segregated by income and education and also by politics. We're more out of touch with people who don't agree with us. Our school systems are more segregated. Again, this has clear upsides for the people who get the good deals, but I think for the nation as a whole, this is somewhat worrying. So you think that there's an upside to messiness to imperfect matches? Uh, Absolutely, and the randomness of ordinary life, the stumbling across something in a used bookstore, the decision not to go on Yelp, but just to actually walk through a neighborhood and choose a restaurant using your intuition, uh, oddly, these have all become underrated. <laughs> well, I was thinking when I was you know, preparing for this interview and kind of thinking about you know, matching, I was looking at Facebook and a friend of mine had asked her grandmother how she had met her grandfather. And she said, you know, oh, he like lived on my block. You know, I thought, how bad could he be? Yes. And I feel like that notion, this idea of how bad could he be is almost like 180 degrees, the opposite of the way that we think about things now, right? Like it's much more of a like, how good could he be type of attitude. And you need to remove all risk from this process by doing a Google search. You meet someone on match.com. Once you discover their name, you look on social media. Did I like what he or she said on Twitter? Did they go to the right school and so on? And actually, you're ruling out a lot of the people who might be your best partners for an actual relationship. So it's very much a mixed blessing. This ability to control your own choices, we're overrating. We love feeling in control, but it's an illusion you can never actually achieve. When what do you think you were just saying you think you're missing out on, you know, what could be much better partners for you? Do you think it might be someone who would challenge you more, who would perhaps introduce you to new ideas, new concepts, new rituals and so forth? Sure. And, you know, my wife tells me that she actually didn't know that much about me uh, at the time. And that was probably a good thing since she and I often don't agree on politics. We it doesn't create a problem for us getting along. Uh, But I think there are things we act as if they matter. You know, there's an example I give in the book of a woman who I think rejects some man because he was a Mets fan rather than a Yankees fan, as if that could possibly matter. But we have these arbitrary markers. I mean, it'd be one thing if she was a Red Sox fan, you know, and he was a Yankees fan. (laughs) 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 Well, okay. I I lived in Boston for a long time, so I kind of got to get that. all of those ripple effects that you were talking about, um, you know, crossing less across uh, social economic stratum, um, mm. crossing less across people who don't share your political views. Your argument is that all of this sort of reduces the dynamism of In the America. longer run. So it may be good for individuals to self-segregate, mm-hmm. uh, but it's bad for society. And there's a lot of evidence that mixed neighborhoods are very good for mobility. But more and more, people don't want to live in mixed neighborhoods. Maybe when they're 23, but they have kids, they get married, two careers, they want to live in a nice neighborhood. But when everyone does that, both the rent is too high and the neighborhoods that used to be mixed can get worse. Well, yeah, my perception is that that's happening really, at least in America, in almost every major city and even trickling down into some smaller cities. That's sort of like socioeconomic segregation. Also, the cities themselves are becoming just less affordable for you know anyone but kind of this top tier of paths. That's right. One of our most mixed states right now by income is West Virginia. Uh, but that's not because of some 
great moral virtue they have that no one else does. Simply it has not developed as much as a lot of other places. And well-off people and less well-off people, they still often live side by side. Uh, but that's a sign to me that is not the future of America. Well, so thinking about states, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was how you're talking about people make big moves much less than they used to. Um, and you described that decision as sort of symbolic of a desire to change vastly. Right. Um, I like you quote that James M. Jasper um, as saying, the purpose of moving is self-transformation. Do you think that we're less interested in self-transformation than we used to be? We medicate ourselves more. We're much more careful with how we bring up our children. We don't let them play outside as much. In some schools, the game of tag is forbidden. So I think people nominally have never been more attached to self-transformation, but the actual willingness to take the risks it entails probably is lower. Uh, again, we want to be able to control everything, and we want self-transformation, but on our own terms. And that's uh, a somewhat dubious prospect. On our own terms. Can you go a little bit more into that? Well, people will say, yes, I want to self-transform, but here's what I want to self-transform into, and here's how I want my children to self-transform, and I'm going to invest whatever resources are needed to do this. That is a kind of self-transformation, uh, but the kind that is fundamentally unexpected or somewhat outside of your control, uh, we seem less interested in. So, And what would be an example of that, you know, a different type of messier self-transformation that, you know, might be more iconic of sort of this spirit of America? Well, some parts of my book look at data from business. So if you look at startups as a percentage of overall businesses, each decade that has been declining since the 1980s. If you look at measures of American innovativeness outside of the tech sector, which obviously has been very dynamic, but we've become less innovative. We change things less often. And even a lot of the tech innovations, wonderful though they may be, they're too often about staying at home and streaming Netflix and having Amazon send packages to you. And yes, that's convenient, but it's not exactly self-transformation either. What would be an example in the past of like what you would think would be a sort of messier form of self-transformation, like something that sort of like people used to do, but they don't do now? If you think of a good chunk of the 1960s and 70s, there was much more change and ferment and creativity in American life than there is today. You look at something like the movies from that time period, very few sequels or tentpole franchises. Movies were new things. I would argue there was more dynamism and creativity back then. You look at the change in music. Music made in 1965 compared to 1967. You can even hear the difference across two years. Whereas no one today could tell the difference between music from 2017 and 2015, people's mores changed more, not always for the better, of course. Uh, people took more chances. It was a more violent nation. Of course, that was not a good thing. But overall, there was more serendipity. Uh, we, in some ways, may have reached higher peaks. Arguably, we're more authentic in some ways, more turbulent, less well-off, much riskier. Uh, it's a bundle of trade-offs, but we don't have to look very far into the past to see when it was quite different. So going back to um, the point we were touching on a few minutes ago of moving, can you talk a little bit more about just this, you know, change that's happened between people just making sort of big, you know, cross-country moves in the past and the frequency with which they did that versus now? The rate of cross-state moves has declined by about 50% from its post-World War II peak. So people are much more likely to find a place they like, 
and then stay there. This is true even when you adjust for age or adjust for people being two-income couple families. We simply don't want to move as much. Uh, that's a sign of a complacency. It's also a sign there are not many dynamic regions to move to. The Bay Area, of course, but it's super expensive and not everyone can you know, work for Google or Facebook. So it's been a big change in American life. The frontier now is truly gone and most of us aren't even actually aware of that. Well, yeah, and there's this idea that um, people are switching jobs, you know, kind of connected to, right, switching jobs is frequently connected to making a move. And there's this sort of idea that people are switching jobs more frequently than ever that the, that the media kind of perpetuates. But you argue in the book that it's the opposite, really, that people are staying in jobs longer than ever before, for the most part, no? In the data, there's a slight uptick in average and median job tenure. Mm-hmm. Will it be that way forever? I'm not sure. But this sort of breathless article, well, everyone's an Uber driver or assembling three or four different pieces of work, there's much less of that going on than you might think just by sampling anecdotes or media. Uh, the tech sector itself is a few highly visible consumer items that you interact directly. But most of the American workforce and economy, it's pretty standard stuff that actually isn't changing very much. People get jobs they sort of like, but maybe don't love, and they stay with them. And do you think that that has to do just with the types of jobs that are available to people? Or do you think that it's more about this just unwillingness to change and, and lack of interest in sort of risking something new? I think it's all of those. It's lack of interest. It's that there aren't many parts of the country that are booming. So if you're a dentist or you work in retail or you have a very typical American job, say you live in Columbus, Ohio, and someone says, well, you should move to Denver, Colorado. I mean, you know, why would you? Maybe you prefer one city to the other, but you find the one you prefer. And then you stay there, you have a client base, you have friends, support services. And we've become much more like that. We don't imagine the future as being that much different or that much better. Our vision of the future is more gentrification, read, segregation for our cities. Some more nice restaurants. You know a bit more about wine. Uh, you know, your income rises steadily. And that's a, those ambitions are fairly mild tea compared to the visions people had in a lot of the earlier parts of the 20th century. You see it in science fiction, too. We live in the age now of the dystopia. Much earlier, people wrote about utopias. Do you think that there's a way to break out of that mindset, which is sort of small-minded mindset that you're describing? I don't think there's a good way to break out. I think we will be broken out of it by the nastier sides of reality and risk impinging on us. Arguably, we're seeing some parts of that start now. Yeah. But to simply wake up one morning and say, oh, I throw off the shackles of complacency, it's very rare to, to find that happening. Uh, complacency is in many ways extremely pleasant, and people like it. You um, use the word restlessness in the book and describe yes. that as sort of the quintessential quality of the Americans, or at least the Americans that we think we are, and maybe only once were, a lot of people might be surprised who are just listening to this podcast and maybe aren't familiar with your, your work in advance to think that people aren't restless anymore. It's not that we're um, very idle, right? We're an incredibly like busyness-obsessed culture right now. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the sort of difference between um, restlessness and busyness and, and kind of how that's distinct in terms of like we are, I think, as a culture, quite obsessed with busyness, but, you know, are obviously kind of resisting this idea of restlessness or maybe not as interested in it anymore. In my view, a lot of our busyness is fairly trivial. 
So just take the time people spend on social media or watching TV. It does make them busy. It leaves them less time for running errands. Maybe they feel harried. Uh, but I don't think that's a, a true harriedness. As Americans, we're used to looking at ourselves through the lens of Western Europe. Tocqueville, Henry James, many classic works. And if you compare us to Western Europe, we are quite harried and on the move, even now. Uh, but Western Europe is an increasingly small chunk of the world. I think of my book, in a way, as the result of someone having gone to China who decided to write a book about America as it might be seen through Chinese eyes. And in that regard, we're then really not very harried at all, and we're quite complacent. And Chinese people who come to the United States typically see this far more clearly than we do ourselves. And can you talk about what you saw when you were in China that kind of opened your eyes to this, this contrast to America? I saw people who were actually harried and who face a lot of risk and who have the attitude, I need to go out there and confront this risk or it will come after me. There's no way I can build myself a safe cocoon. I've got to in some way try to master my environment. We need to build more and more things all the time. I just had dinner with two Chinese who just came to this country for the first time ever. Uh, one was a boy, I think he might have been 16, the other was a, a grown woman, his mother. And I said, well, what about America to you is surprising or striking? And they said, you have wonderfully clean air. And that's great, I'm very glad we have clean air. Uh, but it's not what a Western European would have said in 1890 or, or 1930. We're the country with clean air, that's what we are now. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you know, China's in a very different position in terms of the sort of trajectory as a country. Do you think that complacency is kind of what happens when you get sort of a certain way along this trajectory um, as a country? It is likely, yes. And I think also there's a kind of coincidence that the information technology we have gotten first, it has improved our leisure time more than it's improved our drive or dynamism. And it's stay-at-home kinds of things. The return to staying at home has gone way up. The return to trying to get around with congestion, traffic, uh, it's harder than it was 30, 40 years ago. Or if you took the train down here, uh, it was it's no better an experience than it was in the 1970s to take a train <laughs> from New York to DC. It's absolutely not. It may be worse. It's probably on ways. the same train too. Yeah, exactly. Literally the same train, <laughs> the same tracks. This is shocking to people from China. So the return to trying to manipulate physical space is lower, the return to being at home and quiescent is higher. Uh, to me, that's on net a negative. Have you seen any technologies that you think in any way would increase people's drive or willingness to sort of be more dynamic? Well, they're opening the new Tappanzi Bridge in New York. I think it's today or yesterday. It's the first major bridge built uh, near New York City since 1964. Wow. So you say new technologies, but I'd say let's start with the old technologies. Mm -hmm. Let's just make it easier for people to get around. We can do it. It took 20 years. Uh, this is crazy, right? We can do much better than this. We're a productive country. So new technologies, yes, but there's some very simple things we could do to make it better. Improving traffic congestion is a start. What do you think people can do on an individual level? You know, clearly I'm my... Well, I'll say this. Maybe you'll correct me. My ability to have an impact on, um, you know, building a bridge might be somewhat limited as an individual. What do you think people as individuals could do to kind of 
try to start shifting this and maybe it's just engaging more politically? Well, people can engage more politically. We're overall an under-engaged nation. I'm not saying you are personally. I have no idea. But if you're running a podcast series, my guess is you're not. But I would say even in our personal lives, there's a recent piece of research by Steve Levitt. He and some co-authors did a study where they took you know, people in a control group and they got people who would be willing to make a change if a coin flip came up as yes, they should make the change. And some coin flips came up yes for some people and came up no for the other people. And the people who followed the coins, the ones who made the change because the coin flip told them they should, ended up reporting themselves as better off than those that didn't make the changes. So even for our purely personal decisions, I suspect there's too much status quo bias. And if you're thinking, should I move? Should I take a new job? Should I change X, Y, Z? Just, you know, nudge yourself a bit more toward maybe making those changes. Yeah, I think there's this um, quote from Milton Erickson that's um, change leads to insight more than insight leads to change. Yes, which that's I think very wise. <laughs> <laughs> is, but, but right, but we're such a sort of insight, you know, kind of takeaway driven culture right now that we're always, as you were saying, like we want to control that self transformation. So we're much more thinking like, let me figure out what I, how I need to transform and then I'll do it as opposed to just kind of like, hmm, maybe I'll try this, see what happens, right? Yeah. And we're into these false notions of being so busy. Like, how can I possibly change? It fe- my day feels so full. But if you look at actual time diaries, again, I mentioned social media and television, there are ways you can change. Uh, we just don't want to actually do them. It's time for a quick break now, but stay with me. After the jump, Tyler and I talk about the incredible complacency quiz that he created. And he shares tactical ideas on how you can up the ante on risk. And the good news is, it's mostly about making small changes. This episode is sponsored by Hover. To learn a little bit more about them, I did a mini interview with Kai Brock, a customer and the creator of one of my favorite print publications about life, work, and technology, Offscreen Magazine. You describe off-screen as having a human-centered approach. What does that mean exactly for you? Uh, when we talk about technology nowadays, especially in mainstream media, it's often just about monetary success. And I think with off-screen, I wanted to become a voice that highlights that technology is, most of all, is about creating tools that help us become better humans. And most importantly, help us all. So it's not just about some rich white guys in Silicon Valley. It's about creating inclusionary tools that help everyone get onto the bandwagon of of technology. Do you feel like Hover has a human-centered approach? For me, it's a tool. And I need that tool to be easy and fast and reliable. The website and the interface is quite minimal, which is exactly what I want from from a tool like that. On the other hand, every time I had interaction with Hava and when I you know go through their blog and, and read some of the customer stories, I think that's exactly what you just said. It's a human approach. It's it's minimal, but at the same time, it, it actually connects with people and is responsive to to, to customer uh, questions and feedback. And that's exactly what you want from any company, really. You want it to be getting out of the way when you need to get stuff done, but when you need them to be in your life, they are you know fast and responsive. Hover. Getting out of your way when you need to get stuff done? Fast and responsive when you need them. Head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first domain purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. 
You have this really wonderful complacency quiz that you put together um, that I'm going to highly recommend anyone listening take, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And, you know, and ask questions about everything related to, you know, how often do you go see movies you've never heard of? You know, when do you use a dating app? Or mm-hmm. would you be willing to ask out a stranger in a bar? What do you do when a political situation makes you angry? Um, I came out as a striver, so I'm doing okay, but I could be doing better. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I found taking the quiz was quite a sort of humbling activity because it is very eye opening and it sort of revealed to me, you know, the ways in which I was kind of inside my own bubble. So I was curious if you could talk about kind of the thinking behind that quiz and if you've collected any interesting data. Uh, Most people turn out to be complacent and, uh, quite a few write me angry emails that something must be wrong with the quiz because they know they're not complacent. These are typically total strangers. Uh, but the point of the quiz is not your score, because there are always different ways you can weight particular answers. The point of the quiz is to get you thinking about the questions within the quiz. And I did the quiz myself, of course. Uh, wished I would have come out better, but it really got me thinking. I have more or less lived in the same state for almost 30 years. And that counted against me, uh, as you might expect. And to just rethink, do I want to spend another 20 years... 30 years maybe, living in this same state. And the quiz got me to do that. To you, what are some of the most interesting or sort of revealing questions on there? How people deal with others who don't agree with their politics, how many friends they have, especially nowadays that things are so polarized, where they can actually have a discussion about something that doesn't just degenerate immediately. what people have as their ambitions relative to where they are now, uh, how alike our friends are to us, people seem to do quite miserably on and then get upset about because I don't think that's a sign of complacency. Maybe that's the most striking one to me. That was one that I did poorly on, <laughs> you know, hanging out with people with uh, similar political views and of, you know, similar socioeconomic backgrounds. Have you seen people kind of do any interesting experiments in order to kind of break through that? Yeah, obviously it depends on your circumstances. Uh, But, you know, every part of your life uh, to re-examine critically. So I think, say, our culture as a whole, we have become less interested in music and more interested in food. There's nothing wrong with that for any single person. But music uh, is more dynamic. It's more likely to make you feel you should get up and dance or move or change something. Food, you tend to pair with wine. It may make you a little sleepy. You then have a state of repose after you've eaten something. So just take your life and ask, well, you know, at the margin, should I do a little more music and a bit less food? Some people could do that. And it's really many small things. If it were one big thing that you could just overturn, it would be less insidious. But it's how hard it is to look at all these small things Things you take as natural. Well, well, of course I'm more interested in food. There are so many wonderful restaurants today, and there are. So you go down that path, and you almost don't even think about it as a very deliberate cultural choice in favor of complacency. Is this um, just an observation, this shift from interest to um, music to food, or is that like data-driven? It's data-driven, but I think it's obvious anecdotally. Hmm. Uh, if you look at, say, sales of music, it's tricky because the technologies are changing. Oh. You know, to what extent to illegal downloads, sub-in for sales, and so on. But music is much less culturally central than it used to be. Same is true of movies. They're more entertainment for young people. Uh, Social media, obviously, are more culturally central. I think they tend to encourage complacency. Television, 
I would say, uh, is more central. People just like stick with the series. They keep on watching it, even if it's not that great. May or may not be good. I think overall it's somewhat more complacent than, say, going to the movies, which also gets you out of the house. I just I recently realized that you can turn off the auto next episode play on Netflix, which is a wonderful revelation. Yes, that's that's a kind of poison, <laughs> auto next play. Yeah, exactly. Um, but to go back to what you were saying before, that's these little things. That was kind of my primary um, one of my my primary takeaways from the book was that in many ways, um, risk taking is sort of additive or incremental. Yes. Like we think of it as this, like you're a risk taker, you know, and you're like making big leaps or you're not, um, you know, but you describe it as sort of right. This kind of series of, you know, small decisions that we make, you know, to not, uh, just wander down the street and pick out a restaurant based on our intuition, but to look up the reviews on Yelp and see what other people have thought about it. Or, you know, to use Tinder instead of, uh, you know, going into a bar and talking to someone, um, you know, or to even use Google maps rather than, you know, just walking, guessing at where you're going and trying to get there. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's a big shift in the like. I don't think most people understand risk taking as playing out in that way. That's right. I mean, put this in a business context. Say you woke up one morning and said, I want to do a startup. May or may not be a good idea, but simply announcing to yourself that you want to do one doesn't put you in a position to succeed. It may be you would have needed years of hanging out with people who did startups or getting to know people you might plausibly hire or learn about risk taking in business. A whole set of preparatory steps that maybe at no particular time seem important, but if the culture's not nudging you into them, you'll find when the day comes, oh, I've got to do my startup, it's a kind of, it more becomes a paralyzing thought than an empowering thought because you realize you can't, you then feel worse. You may even kind of shrink further back and, uh, you know, listen to less music and eat more food and uh, watch more TV serials on autoplay. I guess in terms of if we're thinking about like what people are listening or thinking about what they can do, it's more about really just questioning on as much as possible on sort of a daily level. You know, are you kind of doing the same things again and again, or are you accepting these suggestions from an algorithm or, you know, and how could you kind of maybe flip a coin, I guess, and just do something different just, just because. And often it's the decisions you feel best about that need to be questioned the most. There's a lot of big life decisions, like should I take a job with higher pay and more hours? I mean, clearly everyone questions that. They ask all their friends, they agonize, they think, they read online, they Google the question. Uh, that's fine, but you don't actually get that far. We're already doing all that. It's those little preparatory steps where you just feel you're making a, a modest improvement in your circumstances. That's where the danger lies. This relates to your slow versus fast emphasis in yeah. some of your other podcasts. Yeah. You how's can't the, just say, well, I want to do things slowly. Uh, you have to actually learn how to enjoy to do things in different ways. And that is itself a slow process. So if you're geared toward fast, 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 and then you decide you want to change, again, you can end up more paralyzed and feel disempowered pretty quickly. So you were talking about, you know, we think about these big changes, you know, taking a new job, maybe getting married, and we do analyze those extensively. What are the ones that you're kind of talking, like, what would be some examples of maybe some of the lower level ones that we like don't consider as much, but would be worthwhile to think about? Well, am I taking some risks here? And, and maybe I should. Every time you go on social media, every decision you make with respect to your own education, whether it's school to go to, class to take, friends to hang out with, you know, what to do on campus... Uh, again, the things that seem to be fun and kind of harmless is where I would focus, not the big, dramatic, life-altering decisions. Mm -hmm. 
to go back to, we were talking about the, your complacency quiz before. At the end of that quiz, um, you have this kind of great list of sort of small steps that people can take to start to challenge and maybe take some more risks, um, I think, in category of social, intellectual, right. and physical. Can you talk about what some of those are, maybe the, the more out there suggestions that you make for things that people might try? Well, you know, what I would put first on the list now with a little bit of time having passed since then is uh, don't listen to me. <laughs> don't listen to someone tell you how to be non-complacent. It's a very complacent thing to do, to read some book by a, like a guy and think, well, this is kind of my placebo for my own complacency. So don't at all think I or what I'm saying is any kind of placebo. That's just a new way of being complacent. I once kind of joked to myself like, oh, you know, writing a book about complacency, it's a very complacent way to deal with the problem. <laughs> like I could have thrown a brick. Uh, wouldn't have been a good idea, but, you know, what, what really changes outcomes when you take into account we love placebos? And uh, you always want to ask yourself, well, what I'm doing, is this a placebo or is this the real thing? And I would change the advice at the end of that quiz. I would say... Uh, Focus on the question, am I doing a placebo or am I really doing this? What do you think is um, something where you think you, aside from maybe writing the book itself, where you made a decision that was like a sort of a placebo or, a, you know, a placeholder for taking a larger risk? Well, I've become more self-critical about my own travel. So I travel a lot, maybe almost a third of the year I'm on the road. I've been, I'm not sure, maybe close to 100 countries and you might think, oh, this is so bold and, you know, I'm striking out or seeing different cultures. And yes, that's true. But in some ways, I'm traveling the same way to each place. Uh, there's something quite repetitive about travel. You tend to be solving the same kinds of problems over and over again. You can go through the, oh, now I'm going to go to a really poor country phase of your travel life. Um, and yes, you should do that. But it, there's, some, there's some placebo in there as to what you're really experiencing and how much you can get away from the safety cushion that educated people in the U.S. typically will have. And you can do a kind of Barbara Ehrenreich, well, I'm going to go slumming on the other side in some way. But you're not really joining in the life. You're not actually belonging to, say, a church you believe in and counting on them for some of your social support and giving up all the savings you have in a bank account somewhere. Um, so just be, having become more aware of my own placebos, would be my rather uh, unimpressive form of progress that I've made in the last, say, half year. So have you, have you changed anything about the way that you travel, or is there more recognition that that just kind of is what happens, and you, you're not taking huge risks by going to X, Y, or Z country? I'm trying harder to put myself in the hands of other people when I travel uh, and doing what they would have me do. It's a kind of randomization. So I was just in Macedonia, and I was with two other people. Uh, I knew one of them a bit, but not well. And they more or less planned four days for me. And it was quite different from what I would have done. Uh, turns out, I, I suspect it was better. I'll never see the counterfactual. But that worked really well. And I didn't like, even really know I could trust them. I could trust them not to harm me. But I couldn't trust they knew what I wanted to do. And that, actually, they didn't so much. And this was why it was interesting. Right, so, that's the benefit. They didn't make right. do what you wanted to do, probably. <laughs> so in terms of what did I do the last month to be a tiny bit less complacent <laughs> in my travel, it would be that. And mm. I'll do some more of that. I did that in southwestern China also. Uh -huh. I turned my life over to a family for a week, basically. Uh -huh. 
And that also worked very well. I think that's interesting, this putting your life in the hands of others. I'm trying to think of different ways. We love control too much. And this gets back to your slow versus fast theme in your work more generally, that people are going fast. It isn't always that they love fast. It's that fast gives them the feeling of control. And they love the feeling of control, but that control is an illusion. So to back yourself out from that feeling is very hard. And the smarter you are, the easier it is to douse yourself with placebos that feel like you're giving it up, but dig you deeper in. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the people who are listening probably are largely, we'll say, creative professionals, entrepreneurs, knowledge workers. Right. What do you think for, let's say, like kind of that subset of people might be one of the, the greatest risks for complacency, like something that you would really ask those people to sort of think about? It's going to depend who you are, where you live, your age, your resources. Yep. But to take a subset of issues where maybe it feels a lot of people agree, but there's no urgency to make any kind of change whatsoever and actually start seeing them as urgent. Instead of checking your email. Yes. And sometimes (laughs) even instead of the issues that we all know are urgent and indeed are urgent, but I'm not sure piling on at every margin necessarily matters. Mm -hmm. And those are the hot button issues that you're already seeing on your social media and probably commenting on. And like there are terrible things happening and it's not that they should be ignored, but I'm a little worried those two are becoming our kind of placebo. Well, yeah, I was talking with um, someone yesterday about how, especially when you immerse yourself in social media and especially when you immerse yourself on you know, political views, in particular on social media, you start to get very angry and start to get sort of overwhelmed. Yes. and you know, and you have the feeling that you should do something, but maybe don't know exactly what you to do. To your point, like doing something on a local level, even if it feels smaller, Mm -hmm. but that is related to something that you care about. And and even like doing that type of thing, in fact, gives you much more control in your life because you're actually affecting some sort of And it will give you training. If you can make a bigger change on a bigger issue later, it will give you training and preparation. And I think also with social media, one of the worst things about social media is you actually end up seeing how bad some of the people are you disagree with. Like they may hold views that are really terrible or immoral or they might be immoral or they may argue in unfair ways, no matter what your point of view. And this becomes so transparent and you focus on that. And I view that as very disempowering. You become thinking about them and how bad they are. And the fact that you're right makes it worse because it's hard to talk you out of oh, this person said this on Twitter, and of course, it's terrible. It is terrible. Uh, But I don't think that's helpful. So sometimes people say, well, I live in a bubble. You know, my way out of this bubble is to follow more people on Twitter I disagree with. That might be one of those placebos that makes it worse, because then you focus on how bad they are, and some of them are really bad. I'm not saying they all are, uh, but it's a distraction, too. One, what would be the alternative to that, taking some sort of local political action? I think having a naive view that people are quite good, even though that may not always be justified, uh, you should try to cultivate in yourself. And whatever is required for you to be nudged more toward that, I think you'll be much more effective. Like focus on the good in people, good in yourself. Mm -hmm. It is there. You may need to kind of overly talk yourself into it relative to reality. But I'm willing to, you know, advocate for this kind of false illusion. I love Tyler's notion of risk as being the act of putting ourselves in the hands of others. It's about setting your expectations aside and letting someone else, or maybe just serendipity, drive for a while. 
But I would add a corollary. In order to truly put ourselves in the hands of others, we must remove something from our hands. And that's the smartphone. This tiny but infinitely powerful object that we constantly look to for guidance, for verification, for affirmation that yes, I will like this person, or yes, this is the best route to take. This conversation made me realize that a smartphone is essentially an anti-risk-taking device. As you gaze at it, even that small physical act throws up a kind of force field around you that says, don't approach me, don't talk to me, don't mess with me, because I'm busy. Me and my attention are already spoken for. And inside the glowing rectangle, we control everything. We can find the perfect match, the perfect song, the perfect rental. But is perfection really that great? Maybe the messiness of making ourselves vulnerable, of putting ourselves in the hands of others, is where the real action is. Next week on the show, I'll be talking with researcher Sigrid Vesey from the University of Pennsylvania about the science of sleep. We'll be talking about the increasing prevalence of chronic sleep loss and the impact that it has on our general creativity and cognitive function, as well as practical tips on how you can improve the quality of your slumber, like engaging in a pre-bedtime cool-down routine. I walked away from the conversation with a much deeper understanding of sleep's role in my daily performance, and I'm guessing you will too. So tune in for that next Tuesday, especially since the upcoming holidays will be a great time to catch up on lost sleep. If you'd like to be notified when new Hurry Slowly episodes come out so you don't snooze right through them, you can sign up for my personal newsletter at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. The weekly email also includes writing and meditations from yours truly and links to some of the best articles around the web on finding more creativity and meaning in your daily work. But enough about me. It's time for our final moment of Zen. What are the benefits of being out of control, of kind of being messy? For out of control to work for you, you still have to feel a base of control. If you truly feel deeply out of control, uh, you won't be able to cope with it and you'll do self-destructive things or maybe harm other people. So it's some kind of just right balance of you have enough security that you can cope with the ways in which you're out of control. And it will uh, encourage you to realize losses are coming anyway. So like I can take some chances and the possible losses from those I should not treat as paralyzing. And having like the strength to emotionally internalize that these losses are always possible. It takes actually a strong sense of partial control to do that. So somehow it's all about balance and like thinking, well, in my portfolio, what is it that I need more or less of in terms of feelings of control, not control? Just everyone feeling in chaos won't, won't work. This show was produced by Matt Susich, who I found by talking to a real human not using my phone. Our theme music, Calm Revelation, was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you dug the show, and especially if you think you might change your behavior because of it, take a hot minute to pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Every rating helps us attract new listeners and grow the show. We really appreciate them. Thanks again for listening, and remember to hurry slowly.